time before we look into the word. Father, we do honor you and we desire to know you. We don't want to just know about you, Lord, uh, merely a bunch of facts about you, but we desire to know you with a relationship that is deep and intimate and lifelong and grows ever more profound as the years goes on. A life-changing relationship with you, Lord, is what we long for, and we know that the way to hear your voice, the way to get to know you more about what you're like and what your will is for us as Lord is in your word. And so we ask that you would help us to understand what is taught in your word, what is recorded in your word, that we might understand the glories of Christ more clearly and the issues of our own hearts and how much we all need a savior. And we pray that you be honored as we look into your word. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Question I start out with this morning is uh, an interesting, intriguing question. The question is this. Is every profession of faith genuine? How can we know or how do we know that a person who responds to the gospel message with enthusiasm at some point in their life, maybe when they were younger, maybe when they were a teenager, maybe when they're a young adult, they respond to the gospel message with enthusiasm. How do we know they truly are born again? Well, Jesus, as you know, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story that Jesus told in Matthew 13, where he provided a parable that provides some insight into this particular question and this issue. In the parable of the different soils, in Matthew 13, Jesus describes a familiar scene that I'm sure those in his audience would have seen with their own eyes, a farmer who probably has his garment uh, pulled up and he's got a bunch of seeds right there and he is throwing and tossing seeds into a field. And as he does so, some of the seeds that he's tossing falls onto a hardened, well-traveled path that cuts through that property. And not too long after that, some birds come and they snatch those seeds up before the seeds can even begin to grow or germinate. Some other seeds that the farmer throws out there fall onto shallow or rocky soil so that when they begin to grow and the plants begin to now show signs of life, they grow for a little while and then they stop growing. They die because the roots are blocked by rocks and they have nothing, no way to get nourishment and they probably dry out in the hot sun. Other seeds that the farmer throws falls on a ground where there also happens to be thorns that are growing there. They're fairly small at the time. But after a while, with the seeds now growing and the thorns growing at the same time, the thorns choke those plants that have begun to grow. And finally, and thankfully for the sake of that farmer, some of the seed he throws lands on good soil, good ground, and it produces much grain. And then Jesus gave this important interpretation. He's not just talking about agriculture. He's talking about a story that was true to life, but it had much spiritual insight in the story. He says the seed represents the word of the kingdom of God. It's the gospel. It's the same seed as being sown in different situations in different people's lives. And the first hearer, like hardened soil, has a heart that cannot understand the gospel. And the devil snatches away what was sown in that person's heart. The seed sown in rocky soil represents the person who hears the word. They immediately receive that word, 
But despite the initial joy they had in hearing the gospel, they find that later on that joy is only temporary because soon there's going to be forms of affliction. There are going to be forms of persecution that come because of the gospel and their commitment to follow Jesus. And those people don't want to face that, and immediately that person falls away. It's not worth it. Another kind of person is represented by the seed that's sown among the thorns. You recall the thorns, and I think that applies to what we'll be talking about here today. So listen, listen carefully to this. The person whose heart receives the words, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of riches, Jesus said, choke out that word and the word becomes unfruitful. It does not bear fruit in that person's life because of his uh, being torn by worldliness and worldly desires, worldly thinking. And the seed that falls on good soil, of course, represents the person who hears the word and they understand the word. They respond in such a way that it's evident that there's obvious fruit of faith and repentance. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at Acts chapter 8, and I'll tell you why I gave you that background. We're in our series of looking through the book of Acts, which is really the second book that our physician author Luke composed. The first is the Gospel of Luke. This is the second book that he wrote, the book of the Acts of the Apostles. It's really the Acts that Jesus Christ continued to do through his apostles and through the early church. And Luke is going to provide for us a true life account of someone who initially receives the gospel message positively. He receives it enthusiastically. He receives it with some sort of emotional uh, response to the gospel message, it would appear. And everyone assumes that this fellow is a believer, and so much so that he's also baptized, as you would expect someone who appears to be a believer. But it's clear as you continue to read the account that this person, in his heart, the gospel gets choked out by the weeds and the thorns of worldliness. Here in Acts chapter 8, the person never produces the outward fruit of repentance and genuine saving faith. Let's read now together. Follow along as I read in Acts chapter 8, verse 5, where we read, Therefore, we'll start verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ, the Messiah, to them. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip, as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. And in the case of many who had seen unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed." And there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to Simon, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip 
And as he observed the signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they began laying, this is the apostles, began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no portion, sorry, you have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, as I've studied this text and I've been thinking about it rather uh, seriously, I've come up with two, and our outline has two points and then a third additional point that has another whole point I want to develop. But anyway, two main points. Consider two evidences or indications of a shallow, superficial profession of faith. The first one is this. You know there's a superficial profession of faith when there's a lack of transformed heart affections, heart affections, heart desires. And this is evidenced by the lack of true heartfelt sorrow over sin and true repentance. Here we have a man from Samaria called Simon, and his life passion is doing what? Getting attention for himself. He wants to be the main show. He's a person who loves to wow people. And he did this apparently for quite a long time through magic, which I would understand is he's performing tricks, sleight of hand. Maybe there's some part of the occult in here too. I'm not sure. But he gave the appearance as if he held in his possession supernatural power. In other words, Verses 9 and 10 would indicate that he was doing things that would indicate this man is powerful. How did he do that? And in the city of Samaria, notice the description there, people are astonished at his magic power, magic arts. And he just loved being the center of attention. And he boasted about his greatness. He prided himself on his ability to perform Various feats that some people, when you look at them, would say, that is impossible. How did you do that? Wouldn't you love to be able to do things that make people go, wow, that's amazing. Well, he is that person. Matter of fact, somebody had suggested in my reading that he probably had a good stage name. And looking at verse 10, perhaps the stage name was Simon the Magnificent. I mean, he was just over the top saying that he was all that. 
And he wowed those audience members, whether they were young or old, and he reveled in making people think that he was godlike. He wanted people to think he was superhuman, that he was a superhero, let's say. So then here comes to town a guy named Philip. And Luke specifically writes here, a very interesting way he describes what occurs because he's going to show with verbal signals in the text here that Philip is indicating that when he comes to town, he is now taking the spotlight off of Simon the Magnificent. Because as he makes known the gospel, as Philip begins to talk about the true one who is all-powerful, as he talks and demonstrates the power of the gospel to change people's hearts and lives, and it was accompanied by apostolic signs and wonders showing that people really were healed to verify that this truly is the, the real and genuine gospel, people then began to say, oh, I'm more astonished at what this is happening. This is truly powerful. And there is Simon fading into the background, lost the limelight. The fading star that he was is now begin to very quickly lose its glory. His notoriety is beginning to diminish. And so here is Philip, this ordinary man showing up in Samaria. He's not from that area. And Philip himself had been transformed. It is Philip who is laying down his life by doing something that was extremely rare and strange out of the ordinary for him to give up what he was doing and to go into a land of people that normally he would say, I have nothing to do with these people. I can't stand them. He had grown up most likely hating them, despising them, having all sorts of uh, views of animosity toward them, rooted in a deep sense of, of uh, racial animosity. And here he is proclaiming to them the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And what is his motivation? Is he trying to get something from them? No, he is doing it out of love. Here is Philip showing and demonstrating a true, radically powerful spiritual reality. He has gone from being a person filled with racial hatred toward the people that he's now associating himself with and evangelizing to giving of himself in selfless service rooted in a love for these people which Christ gave him. And therefore, he's showing the great power of Jesus Christ over a person's heart that needs to be changed. And so here's Simon. Instead of trying to amaze other people by this magic, he himself, look at verse 13, he becomes amazed. Isn't that interesting? That's Luke's carefully worded there. He's showing the interest of how he used to get everybody amazed. Now he's amazed. And so here he responds out of this amazement with a profession of faith, along with many others. And he did what he was told. He was soon thereafter baptized. And he witnessed the subsequent affirmation of the apostles when they lay their hands on these folks and they indeed receive the gospel and they receive the Holy Spirit as a result of all that. Many of these genuine believers did. No mention is made, however, in the text that Simon received the Spirit. Did you notice that? Nowhere does it say that Simon himself received the Spirit. His focus was zeroing in on 
gaining this authority, this power. He wanted to have the power and authority that the apostles had. He just wanted to be able to also touch people, lay his hands upon them, and impart to them some amazing transformative power that would be spiritual kind of power. And so he says, listen here, apostles, I got lots of money. I'll be glad to give you some money. Just give that power to me. Here, I'll give you whatever you ask for. He's trying to, what? Wheel and deal. Let's make a deal. Isn't that a bit of an odd response to this phenomenon? And so his offer to purchase spiritual power from these apostles, primarily for what reason? Selfish reasons. To astonish people, to get back to where he was gaining this notoriety of being a powerful person in order to maintain his reputation for having this supposed godlike power. It would indicate that the soil of his heart was what? Getting choked out by his love for praise of other people, notoriety, fame, fortune, his worldly desires, his worldly thinking is choking out the gospel. And I believe that Simon is an example, letter D in your notes, of a person who lacks true humility. Simon is full of himself. He is lacking in true heartfelt sorrow for his sin. His repentance, I believe, was superficial. The affection of his heart has never really changed. It's still primarily focused on himself and keeping and retaining this sense of greatness in other people's eyes. His interest in the things of Christ are primarily for the purpose of enriching himself so that what he wants from God is not a personal relationship with Christ and to cherish Christ. He wants to cherish himself more and use Christ in order to get there. I'm going to throw some free, free tidbit right here, no extra charge. I want to just digress in just a second and show you that the word simony, S-I-M-O-N-Y, a term which means to obtain an office in the church through bribery comes right out of this text. And in, in, in years, former years, people have been known to say, hey, I'll give you some money, just give me a promotion in this hierarchy and within the church uh, administration. And so this is where the word simony comes from. Anyway, I, that's, that's free, no extra charge. I'm moving on. But what is Simon's desire for? Any desire he had for Christ at some point in his life is now getting choked out by his proud longings for, I want other people's praise, I want their approval, I want their applause. I want them to think that I am truly great, greater than they are. He's looking for significance in all the wrong places rather than through the gospel. Look at the quote I gave you in your notes. The author, Arthur Pink, is quoted as saying, it is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over sin, which distinguishes the child of God from a person who is an empty professor of faith. Someone who is professing faith, but it's done in an empty way. You say, why are you coming out so strong on this Simon guy? You, you, the text does say he believed, yes, but look at what Peter says, will you? Look at Peter's reaction. What is God's viewpoint 
of someone whose heart that professes to love Christ, but in reality their heart is choked by worldly deception of riches and worldly thinking. See, Peter's assessment of Simon's offer to buy spiritual power and spiritual greatness. Look there, verse 20. This is a penetrating, a powerful, this is like the, the uh, climactic point of this account, it seems to me. Verse 20. Peter says to the offer that Simon made, oh, just give that to me, I'll give you money. Peter says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now I'm gonna sort of say something that may startle you. This is a translation that was offered by J.B. Phillips who often had a very uh, clever way of trying to translate the New Testament. And this is what he said. Phillips said, what Peter was really saying here is he's saying this, to hell with you and your money. That's strong language. But what Peter is saying here in the strongest of terms is nothing God has is for sale. Nothing. All false religion is built on the foundation of earning or gaining some sort of merit, some sort of impressive uh, uh, accomplishment before God on the basis of our efforts, on the basis of our performance. Every false religion involves offering to God something of value with the hope and the desire to get onto God's good side. And so they try to accumulate merit so that God would therefore, because I've done this, this, and this, I have therefore accumulated merit. I've got this thing that now I can bring to God and say, okay, God, now you owe me. Now give me what I need or want from you. Give me something good. But you see, the gospel is the opposite of that. The gospel says, I have nothing to offer God of any worth or value. I can't even pay the debts I owe him. And I come with empty hands and God by his grace gives us this incredible gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. So much so that Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. That's what we all deserve. That's what we earn. That's what we have coming to us. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It doesn't say the wages of God, it says the gift, he gives it to us freely. It's amazing how the mentality of saying, if I can just get what I want through my own attempts, through my own resources, then I know I'll be happy. For Simon, he did it in trying to buy something spiritual. Other people do it with money to buy something in the physical world realm here, and they do it to try to obtain what they long for spiritually. They can't get it. 1 Timothy chapter 6 warns us, about the dangers of trying to use money to gain significance in terms of our status before other people, even God. And isn't that what our culture continually says to us? If you just become rich, you've made it. And they pray, parade before us all these people who are filthy rich. And we all think, oh, if I could just be like them, if I could just have all that money. And have you ever heard some of them talk? They're some of the most miserable people around because money doesn't 
satisfy the human heart. This is what Paul says to Timothy. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation. They fall into a snare, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into what? Ruin and destruction. Why? Why does that happen? Because the love of money, he goes on to say, is a root of all sorts of evil. It's because the heart is captured by this love or a, a super desire to have wealth and money, and therefore it leads to all sorts of evil. Some, of the, some, by longing for this kind of riches, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. As I read that text, I said, and as I've thought about Simon, I said, isn't this another illustration of the sad, sorry story of Judas? Judas's story was similar in the sense that he positively responded to Jesus's call to follow him, right? He lined up with the other 11 and began to follow Jesus and seemed to be very interested in what he had to say and doing what he told him to do. And here is Judas with all the other disciples following him. And they assumed that he was a sincere, earnest, genuine follower and believer of true disciple of Jesus Christ. You say, how do you know that? At the Last Supper, if you read carefully, John 13, Jesus with the 12 says this statement, one of you of the 12 will betray me. Now listen to the response. They all didn't say, oh, it's that Judas guy. We know he is definitely going to be the one to do that because we have seen and know and can tell that he is a phony baloney professing, professing believer. No. The next verse says this, after Jesus says, one of you will betray me, it says the disciples began looking at one another. They were clueless who he's talking about. At a loss to know of which one he was speaking. So it was, it was clearly a person who was, by all accounts, people could tell that yes, Judas was a true and genuine follower of Jesus. But after he died, I think things came to light about Judas because why? Judas's heart was never wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. Why? Because money was his true master. You say, how do you know that? If you read John 12, John adds the comment, John's writing in 90 AD, which is long after uh, the account of Jesus's death, you know, in 30 AD. And so he says, listen, when we had a situation where someone offered an expensive gift to Jesus and Judas goes, are you kidding me? What a waste of money to pour that out on his feet. This perfume could have been sold and give it to the poor. And then John says, yeah, he was saying that not because he really was concerned about the poor, but because he was what? A person who was stealing out of the checking account. He was stealing, embezzling money. Why? Because he realized that Jesus is not his true master. At some point he says, I can't put up with this. Jesus is going in a different direction. He's willing to lay down his life on a cross. That's not my kind of savior. Here's the point. Some people respond to God with words and actions that appear earnest and sincere, but their proud hearts have never been broken before God. Their devotion to God is offered in exchange from what they expect God to give them. They're bargaining with God. Okay, I'm willing to let go of this, but I'm expecting you to do this, God, for me. 
You got to give me this and I'll, be do, I'll, I'll do this for you. They're in a bargaining situation. They're not really humble before God. So people can give the outward appearance that they are saved. They can attend church. They can say all the right words. They can join a church. They can get baptized. They can support the church financially. And they can still remain dead in their sins. And Jesus said one time to this highly respected religious leader who prided himself in all the different ways in which he sought to be a morally upright person and compared to the average person he saw himself as checking off a list of all kinds of things, good things he was involved in. Jesus said to him in a non-negotiable absolute, truly, truly, I say to you, you must, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't just be a person who does things on the outside or says certain words. You must have a heart that's been changed. And the only way to have a heart that's right with God is to admit Admit your spiritual bankruptcy. Admit and acknowledge that you are unable to save yourself. Admit that you come to Jesus as your only hope of ever being found made right with God and being forgiven of your sins. The only greatness that we have is the extent and depth of our depravity. That's all we have to offer God. There's no greatness in our hearts and lives. And Jesus is the one who's great. He has earned everything that we need and we're called in the gospel to turn away from our sin and to turn to Christ in faith. That's the gospel. And what was wrong with Simon, sadly enough, is that Satan, Simon's heart was not right with God. Why? Look at verse 23 what Peter said there. His heart was in the bondage of iniquity. It was still locked in a way of thinking, in a way of desiring that indicated it never had been changed. The affections of his heart were still in the direction of trying to pursue things for himself. His heart had never been transformed. His heart still craved the praise and admiration of other people more than God. And here's what I think the bottom line is for Simon. His heart was devoted to an idol, and the idol was himself. And let's be honest, the greatest obstacle for anyone to come to faith in Christ is to let go of the idol of self. It's the willingness to say, I surrender myself to my master, to my Lord who gave himself for me. I stop trying all attempts to try to gain my own righteousness, to gain my own uh, merit, to gain my any kind of standing before God. I give it all up. I surrender everything. I lay it before Christ at the foot of the cross and I come humbly and submissively to Christ. Have you done that? Have you seen the evidence of that in your heart and life? I know many of you have. If you haven't, my friend, there's hope for you. At any moment, even the man on the cross, the thief on the cross, turned to Christ saying, at this last moment I'm gasping for breath, I realize I need a Savior. Jesus says, well, you'll be with me in paradise if you have your faith and trust in me. It's never too late. One more thing I want to point out from this text, and there's so much here, but I'm trying to move along. You'll notice there's evidence in terms of his superficial profession of faith. It's because there's superficial submission on the part of Simon. Jesus made it very clear 
in John 14 that one of the outward evidences of a love for Christ is not to wear certain clothing or to not wear a certain style of clothing. It is not to have a certain lifestyle. No, it says keep his commandments. Keep his commandments. That's the way you know and have outward evidence that you love Christ. And Jesus taught that it is possible for some people to profess their devotion to Christ and to call him Lord, call him their Savior, and they can accomplish various things that seem very spiritually impressive and still never be saved. Look at Matthew 7. Again, I'm trying just to make the point because some people don't really believe this, but the scriptures teach it. It's so clear to me. Matthew 7, verse 20 says this. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You will know my true disciples by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus said, Many will come and say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And Jesus says, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Why? You who practice, that is, you who have a lifestyle, you who are in the habit of constantly living in a lawless way, disregarding the commands of Christ, never showing by outward fruit of repentance and true obedience. Here's Simon offering money to obtain spiritual power. He wants to be able to bestow the Holy Spirit on anybody he wants to touch and anoint them and whatever. And so here Peter comes and confronts him. And this I want to point out one more time in verses 20 to 23. Peter speaks the truth to him. He is not, Peter's doing this out of a love for him. And he says, Listen here, Simon, your insistence that you, your heart is not right with God. I want you to know that your heart is not right with God. I want you to know that you are uh, never fully personally embraced the teaching of free grace that's in the gospel. You're still trying to gain your own merit. He urged Simon to humble himself, to ask God to forgive him. He's looking to see, is there any indication in his heart that he has a remorse and a sorrow over his sin? that he would ask God to cleanse him from his proud heart. But notice verse 24 to me is so tragic. Simon did not earnestly seek God. He did not humbly cry out to God in prayer. He did what? He asked the other apostles, listen, you guys pray for me. You, you, you seek God on my behalf, would you please? And what's he asking for? The real concern in his heart, verse 24, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Again, I say, what's his real concern? What's in his heart? I think he just doesn't want the negative consequences of his sin and his sinful, asp uh, sinful longings, affections to come upon him. It would seem that Simon's sorrow was primarily sorrow over the fact that he was unable to get what he longed for. I want people to think I'm great. He lacked true sorrow over offending God. Look at the quote there by Jonathan Edwards in your notes. The more a true saint loves God, the more he mourns for sin. 
You see, unbelievers may at times appear to grieve, grieve over their sin, but they don't do it really for godly or God-honoring motives. Often the reason they're grieving over their sin is because they got caught in sin. They are grieving over the consequences that now are going to fall because of their sin. They're grieving over the fact that they really are frustrated that they're not accomplishing what they really want, and so they're doing whatever it takes to get them past whatever is difficult right now in their life. But there's no evidence of true change of mind or producing a change in their behavior. Here is Simon's greatest concern, I believe, was to escape the punishment for what was a heart that was never changed by the gospel. It was a worldly sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 speaks of that. I wonder, have you been a person who was drawn to Christ primarily out of a desire to just escape bad consequences? Is your only interest in Christ to find escape from the punishment that you know you deserve? But your heart really doesn't have a love for Christ. Your heart doesn't really have a, a heaviness that says, oh, I am sorrowful over my sins. I do come to Christ and I do thank him for his, for his love. I do believe that, he, uh, that my sins have been covered by his blood. And I do come and I feel great sense of regret over what I said or did. But I thank you that you loved me, that you died for me, and that you are my Savior. Or is your faith only a foxhole faith? A faith that says, oh, I'm in a big mix here. I'm in a bad situation. I'm in a, in, a, I'm in a crisis. Oh, I'll do anything, God. And then once you get past the crisis, you go right back to living for what? Self, self, self. And there's no concern about how you have walked in a way that has no interest in Christ, no interest in the things of God, no interest in pursuing a life of godliness and serving Christ and, and walking in obedience out of love. These are very, very, very powerful and very important issues to be reminded of. And I trust the Lord will use it to encourage those of us who see the evidence of that faith. You say, I'm not asking for perfection. The Lord is not looking for perfection. He's looking for people who are humble, who are willing to admit their need for a Savior and who love Christ. How can you, how can you be indifferent to Christ who died for you and lives for you and prays for you? I want to make one final comment here, which is really on a whole nother topic. So stay with me here. I'm concerned that as we read the text, this whole idea of the subsequent giving of the Holy Spirit is really strange. I don't know if you caught that as we read that, but it seemed a little odd. So I want to clarify something here. People have wondered, is this passage basically teaching that there should be a separate subsequent reception of the Holy Spirit? following a person who trusts Christ in genuine faith, like these Samaritans, and is that normative? Is that what we should all expect to happen? And so the question is, is conversion a two-step process? That's point number three. Is conversion a two-step process? Very quickly. I mean, very quickly. So don't lose me here. The simple answer to that question is no. No, no, and no. And the reason why, we want to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And if you look at the list of Scriptures I've given you in your notes, you'll notice there that in the New Covenant, 
That is the current uh, period of historical redemptive history that we're in right now, after the cross, after the cross of Christ, after Pentecost, now we're past this transition period of what happened in the book of Acts, which was very unusual, we'll talk about that in a minute. But now in the new covenant, the God gives his spirit to every true believer. It's not a subsequent thing. When you come to faith in Christ and when you are born again, the Holy Spirit is given to you. All those verses I think are very clear on that. But here's the second point I wanna make here to explain why we shouldn't think of it as a two-step process. And John Stott is very helpful in these uh, particular points. If you look at what was uniquely happening in this transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, here's the cross of Christ here, here's the book of Acts. They're now getting used to the fact that here the Holy Spirit is beginning to work, the gospel's moving out beyond the, the barriers of Jewish people and into the Samaritans and the, and the Gentiles. And the question is, now that the gospel's come to these Samaritans, would these Samaritans who are genuinely coming to faith, would they be welcomed and would they be included in as true members, equal members of the same status as the current members of the church of Jesus Christ? As Samaritans who are in faith. Or would these Samaritans form their own church and say that we're our own little group over here. We have nothing to do with the current church made up primarily of people who are Jewish and have come to faith in Christ as their Messiah. And so God deliberately in the book of Acts in this particular section temporarily withheld the Spirit of God until the apostles could come verify what has happened and then they publicly as apostles provided a sign of solidarity. We put our hands on you and we say we are one with you. We are joining with you and we are part of what's happening here. And so when you have come to faith in Christ, you are joining in with the bona fide Christians. We're all together as followers of Jesus Christ. It was done to prevent this gospel destroying schism as if there's one group over here in Samaria and another group over here in Jerusalem. Both believing Jews and believing Samaritans needed to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that these Samaritans had become true equal members in good standing with their fellow Jews. And aren't we glad they did? Because what he's saying here is that anyone else who comes to faith in Christ, no matter what their background, no matter what kind of being viewed by people as having no value or they were hated because of their skin color or hated because of the language they speak or hated because of whatever it is, they are welcomed into the family of Christ on the basis of faith, and they are shown you have just as much privileges and benefits and values of being a, ch a child of God as I do. The church is one, made up of people from all over every tongue, tribe, and nation. That is the wonderful truth of the gospel. It unites in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we know this has been a very powerful and challenging text to look at. We pray that you would use this text to offer hope to those, Lord, who may have in the past had some sort of emotional experience, but they really are not seeing the evidence of faith. May they know, Lord, that you can, even at this stage in their life, impart life to them. Help them, Lord, to truly humble themselves, to surrender to you completely. And may you work by your spirit, Lord, to make of us not just people who make professions of faith, but people who are disciples who are seeking 
after Christ, who are following Christ, who love Christ, who are serving Christ, who are uh, surrendering to Christ. Lord, may your gospel work mightily among us, we pray. And we thank you for the power of the gospel to unite us, that we might all share in the privileges and glories of Jesus Christ. Toward that end, we pray that we would bless our time now around the Lord's table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.